It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. May it please the court. I'm going to get into the Supreme Court oral arguments today about whether Colorado can kick Donald Trump off the ballot. But first, another bit of breaking news. Marianne Williamson has ended her presidential campaign. Now you probably say, I I didn't even know she was still running. The self-help author uh, said in a YouTube video, sunsets are proof that endings can be beautiful too. I do want to see the beauty, and I want to suspend my campaign. And I want all of you who incredibly supported me on this journey, donors, supporters, volunteers, to see the beauty, too. She said she was running on universal health care, tuition-free higher education, paid family leave, free child care, higher minimum wage. Uh, None of which seem to be getting much traction. All right. Story number one. So it's fascinating that now, after decades, you can actually follow the Supreme Court argument on a big case because the audio is playing in real time. And what's happened here is, well, I would never dare to predict how justices are going to vote. Pretty clear split between the conservative and liberal justices on the Roberts Supreme Court. Donald Trump's lawyer was up first and was making, you know, some of this gets into some pretty technical legal arguments about precedence and self-executing and does Congress need to act. But his main message was that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, originally written to bar secessionists from holding office after the Civil War uh, can't be applied here. So he was asked, uh, well, let's say somebody walks into the Secretary of State's office and says, I participated in an insurrection. I want to be on the ballot. Well, the Secretary of State can't do that because of term limits. Now, term limits refers to the fact that under an earlier constitutional amendment inspired by FDR every president is limited to two terms you can't run for a third term and then there was a sort of a a lengthy back and forth about whether or not the argument was for preemption in other words that Congress would have to act to say the states can't do this Amy Coney Barrett said, but Congress would be adding a qualification that it can't be done either. And there was a lot of, you know, lawyers love this stuff. Is it a qualification? Now, there are certain qualifications for running president. You've got to be 35 years old, at least by the time you would take office. Uh, The aforementioned two-term limit. You have to be a U.S. citizen. No dispute about that. Sam Alito, who of course was the driving force behind 
uh, this court dumping Roe v. Wade, asked this, if a state says you can't run, wouldn't that be adding an additional qualification? So according to that point of view, that a number of the conservatives justices seem to embrace, that would be a no-no. That's my own technical term. Alito also saying the consequences of allowing what Colorado did would be quite severe. Some people say, I didn't know justices have to do that, because the Colorado Supreme Court could be deciding this as a precedent for other states. There was some back and forth on that. The former president's lawyer saying that other states could find that the January 6th report is hearsay, therefore inadmissible evidence. But the court can't accelerate the deadlines. I know some of this gets deep in the weeds. I'm trying to simplify it as much as I can. In other words, Donald Trump has until election day to try to argue against this. If you rule it out now, you're taking away his ability. So basically, there were different probes by justices like Sam Alito, like Amy Coney Barrett, like John Roberts, to say, do do we, the high court, have the power to do this based on all kinds of arguments, whether it be doing it too soon, whether the Congress has to act. And whether states just have the authority to kick somebody off the ballot based on other precedents or arguments. But when it came to the liberals, they seem to be much more sympathetic, shall we say, to the idea that a presidential candidate could be disqualified at the state level. Elena Kagan. Congress would need a two-thirds vote to lift a disqualification. So under questioning by Katanji Brown-Jackson, who was perhaps the most aggressive in outlining what could be the liberal position here, Trump's lawyer said, we never accepted the argument that it was an insurrection, what happened on January 6th. That would be an organized effort to overthrow the government using violence, says the former president's lawyer. And she comes back with a one-liner. Jackson saying, so a chaotic effort to overthrow the election is not an insurrection? He says it's got to be organized, and she tries to throw a monkey wrench in that. After roughly an hour, the lawyer for Colorado stood up and took the opposite position. By engaging in this insurrection, January 6th, says Attorney Jason Murray, President Trump disqualified himself from holding public office. So there had been those who said that perhaps the Supreme Court would rule unanimously, thereby giving whatever it rules, but but particularly not allowing Donald Trump to be kicked off the ballot, which would create huge chaos if he was. I cannot imagine a majority of this court saying, oh yeah, that's fine. Colorado and every other state can do what it wants. 
But I'm seeing the outlines at least where there could be, since there's a 6-3 conservative majority on the court, where maybe there would only be six or seven votes in favor of saying Colorado as a state does not have the power to do this. Uh, more to come on this tomorrow, but I wanted to give you the breaking news. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Story number two, the foreign policy implications of the border bill going down, or maybe I should call it the border Israel-Ukraine-Taiwan bill, are just starting to shake people in this capital. The realization that, you know, the strongest country in the world may not be able to provide military aid to two of its endangered allies. So here's New York Times. A year ago when Washington and much of Europe were still awash in optimism that Ukraine was on the verge of repelling Russia, seemed inconceivable. The U.S. would turn its back on the victim of Vladimir Putin's aggression. Now, even as Senate Democrats try to salvage an aid package for Ukraine, we'll see, good luck with that, because a lot of Republicans are opposed to that, that possibility remains real. It's a long way from 14 months ago when Vladimir Zelensky stood before a joint session of Congress wearing his signature green sweater and Bast in a minute-long standing ovation. The turnaround has surprised the White House, even if the Senate manages to advance military aid, and there are still plenty of reasons to doubt the money will come through, including deep opposition among Republicans and Donald Trump's push for what's described in this piece as a more isolationist stance. Uh, Biden aides insist they're not scrambling for other options, Here's Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor. We're not focused on Plan B. We're focused on Plan A. Enabling Ukraine to defend effectively and take back territory that Russia currently occupies. But there's a lot going on behind the scenes. There are other options being discussed, such as seizing more than $300 billion from Russian central bank assets that are being kept in Western nations. But there's nothing out there that could match the power of Congress and the president agreeing to this appropriation of $60 billion, which would you know, improve air defenses, buy more tanks, buy more missiles, buy more ammunition. And also the symbolism of America pulling back now could be profound. So, what about the long-standing assurance, and this predates Joe Biden by decades, that the United States will defend every inch of NATO territory? What if Putin succeeds in conquering Ukraine and then he goes after Poland or name any other country as part of the NATO alliance? And by the way, there's also the question of aid to Israel, which is much more popular, but the Internal politics makes it hard to just do that because all these others will say, what about the border and what about Ukraine? 
Bibi Netanyahu rejecting the latest ceasefire proposal by Hamas. You know, reporters in the Middle East who are very brave and very astute have been playing up these peace talks, and I don't see them going anywhere. Not peace talks in the sense of ending the war, a six-week or so pause in the war that would result in all the hostages ultimately being released, and I just don't see any way that these Hamas terrorists are going to give up that leverage and go along with that. So Hamas wanted a three-stage ceasefire deal to release the hostages, alive and dead. We're learning now that more of them are dead than we, as we had feared. Over a four-month period, in exchange for the complete withdrawal of Israeli forces from the Gaza Strip. Well, that's not going to happen. Netanyahu called these terms delusional. By giving in to Hamas demands, we will only invite another massacre. Continuing military pressure is essential for the hostages' release, says Netanyahu. So I know these are like six-dimensional chess talks between the U.S., Qatar, Israel, Egypt. Uh, I'm just not optimistic. I mean, if you make a proposal like that, sure, you pull out all your troops, and then we'll give you the hostages. You know it's going to be rejected. It's not a serious offer. All right. Let me go back to where I was. And going back to the political implications of all that has gone on with these defeats, I have a whole column today on Fox about the most powerful nation on earth doesn't seem to have a functioning government. I mean, we can't agree on anything. You could argue one or the other sides or ten sides of a lot of these dilemmas, but bottom line, no border bill, despite four months of arduous negotiations between Senate Republicans and Democrats. Uh, No aid to Ukraine, no aid to Israel, no impeachment for the moment of Alejandro Mayorkas. As House Democrats... uh, went to a strategy retreat. This is in Leesburg, Virginia. One thing they're thinking about, how to make sure Republicans in competitive districts pay a political price for the blockade of a deal involving the southern border. Washington Post reminding us that leading Republicans, and most notably the former president, Encourage members of their party to kill that bipartisan legislation. Polls show that Trump is seen as tougher on immigration policies than Biden. Yeah. I mean, this is Biden's mess. I don't want to overlook that. He's had three years to do something about it. And the border is more porous than ever. Republicans argued it was better to leave the border problem as an unresolved issue heading into the elections. But Democratic strategists say Republicans expose themselves to a new line of attack. Here's Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader in the House. Republicans have been ordered by Donald Trump not to solve the challenges at the border, but to continue to play political games because they want to use the border as an electoral issue in November. And that's going to backfire. Republicans thought they set a border trap for Democrats and they fell into it themselves. Meanwhile, this is not a direct result of any of this, but 
you'll recall the initial retaliatory airstrikes ordered by the president in Iraq and Syria against Iranian proxy forces after the three American soldiers in Jordan were tragically killed. Well, there was another one, another retaliatory strike, this one in Baghdad, that killed a senior leader, a senior militia leader, who American officials blamed for these, that drone attack. And the Pentagon says there may be more. Uh, Defense Department saying that the man was a leader of Katyab Hezbollah, that military, well, militia, excuse me, that officials have said was responsible for the drone attack in Jordan. That they had been tracking this militia commander for some time. One official saying the U.S. might strike other Shiite militia leaders and commanders. You know, this reminds me of just the endless Iraq war that was triggered by the U.S. invasion and the Shiites and the Sunnis and just all the sectarian strife there. So there may have also been a second uh, commander killed and crowd marched in the streets of Baghdad chanting, America is the devil. A spokesman for Iraq's security services saying the strike was an aggression, violated Iraqi sovereignty and risked dangerous repercussions in the region. Okay, sure. But why do you allow your country to be a safe haven for these military groups that are attacking the U.S.? That also is basically harboring terrorists. This just brings back so many bad memories, but this is the situation in which we find ourselves. Story number three, let's get into a little politics after pledging, or after perhaps her worst result of the Republican campaign. I mentioned this yesterday, finishing second to none of these candidates in Nevada, Nikki Haley, just went off on the GOP. She put up a social media post uh, going after Trump, going after the Republican Party or the Republican establishment, uh, Ronald McDaniel being forced out as head of the RNC, even though she'd been originally installed by Trump, and the, uh, the court cases, Republicans keep doing the same thing and getting the same result. Chaos. That's the definition of insanity, says Nikki Haley. Chaos is one of her favorite words. The RNC imploded. The GOP House can't pass anything. All caps. That's uh, not usual for her. And, quoting here again, Trump lost another court case and threw another temper tantrum. This is the latest break between Haley and her party. She sounds frustrated, and I can understand why. Haley's team said, look, we didn't spend any time or any money in, the, in Nevada because the rules have been changed to benefit Trump. And he will win all 26 delegates of a caucus scheduled for today. The other thing was a primary. It gets so complicated that it makes my head hurt. But 
essentially, while not using the word, which is one of Trump's favorite words, you know, Nikki Haley is starting to say this process is rigged. She says she's going to stay in the race until at least Super Tuesday. But far behind Trump, far behind Trump, and in her home state of South Carolina, she trails by about 30 points. In California, the biggest state, she's down more than 50 points to Donald Trump. The problem I have is, here you have President Trump telling Congress, don't pass anything until after the election. We can't wait, says Haley. Meanwhile, it's hard for me to even believe I'm doing this, but, you know, there was the story, the anecdote, where President Biden screwed up and mixed up the current president of France, Macron, with the late uh, leader of France, and that was Francois Mitterrand. Well, he told the same anecdote uh, at a couple of fundraisers yesterday, and this time he was talking about a meeting uh, in 2021, and he said he spoke with Helmut Kohl at that meeting. Okay, small problem. The German chancellor, former German chancellor, had been dead for four years. Now, this is just bad staff work. Why don't they give him a blue card like we use in TV and says, this is who was there. Don't refer to Helmut Kohl. Don't refer to Francois Mitterrand. It makes Biden look confused, probably more so than the first screw up. It's like when a newspaper has to correct a story and then a few days later runs a correction to the correction. You know, the White House is a pretty sizable staff. It would have been possible to avoid doing this a second time. Now, more here on the fallout for Speaker Mike Johnson. You know, if you think, stop and think about it. Both Mike Johnson as Speaker of the House and Mitch McConnell as Republican leader in the Senate are both under fire. Ted Cruz wants Mitch McConnell to step down from his leadership post. And many in the House Republican ranks are just sort of losing patience with Johnson, who, after all, you know, had had been a member of Congress for about a half dozen years or so, a little more. Yet, at the same time, completely botched this. He, he didn't have the votes. He didn't have the votes to impeach the Secretary of Homeland Security. And then, of course, he wanted to kill the border bill, and that kind of blew up. So... 
The dysfunction in the House Republican Conference was rivaled only by that of its counterpart in the Senate. Says the Washington Post, GOP leaders' shaky hold over their conferences has led Democrats to fret. That's an odd word, fret. They're worried, they're anxious, perhaps even freaking out about whether the House can avoid a, a government shutdown. The next deadline is March 1st. This would be the third time they've gone through this exercise. And also whether Congress may be, you know, as we were talking earlier in the podcast, abandoning these two crucial allies, Ukraine and Israel. The chaos that has plagued congressional Republicans has intensified as Trump has tightened his grip on the party. So you have McConnell basically trying to ignore Trump as much as he can, keeping his distance. And you have Johnson basically what the Post describes as marching in lockstep with the former president. Trump's influence has minimized their credibility, that is the credibility of these two leaders, and their sway over their colleagues. You know, Congress used to pride itself on being an independent branch of government. Of course, when there's a Democratic president, the Democratic leaders in the House and Senate try to work closely with the White House, and the same is true for Republicans. But when you have McConnell's about to turn 82 and Ted Cruz trying to oust him, and then you have Johnson, who is clearly green at this leadership thing. So here's one unnamed House Republican lawmaker talking about the Mayorkas vote. And then the standalone bill to give $17 billion to Israel, and that failed as well. This was really a massive failure, says this member of Congress. You combine that with what is going on right now with the whole Senate immigration debacle, the way these things have been handled, this is an opportunity for the White House to dump this on our lap. And that could be a huge political mistake. Well, no wonder he's not saying it on the record. Um, Little TikTok here. So when the impeachment vote against Mayorkas was taking place, suddenly it came to a tie when these three Republican dissenters voted against. And the first two had voted against, and the third was Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. He had not said publicly how he was going to vote. But he had warned his colleagues behind closed doors that this would open a Pandora's box. So then Gallagher voted no. And Republican leaders said, well, that's okay because we could afford to lose three votes. But somehow it ended up being, for that moment, that snapshot in time, a 215 to 215 tie. And then what happened is, this is like a bad novel. So all of these other members were swarming around Mike Gallagher on the floor trying to get him to change his mind. That included Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was seen shouting at Mike Gallagher. And one of Mike Johnson's allies, I mean, they were all just trying to get him to flip. So 
Democrats shouted, order, order, trying to bring the vote to a close, because you can do that. You can play a parliamentary game and sort of hold it open, even though time has expired. But the reason that there was a tie vote is this. A Democratic congressman, Al Green of Texas, missed the vote because he was doing something else. And Steve Scalise missed the vote because he was getting cancer treatment. So one of Al Green's closest friends, Congressman Emanuel Cleaver, told the Washington Post he realized Green had been gone for the first vote and might be the difference in the margins. So he called him twice. I panicked, said Cleaver. But Green showed up the last minute in a wheelchair following a medical procedure and cast his vote, tying it at 215 sending Republicans into a scramble. And then, of course, the vote ultimately failed by two. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story number four. Oh, this is just interesting because there was so much made of this. I mean, this story was inescapable many months ago. But National Review says, like a bolt from the blue, Donald Trump has signaled his intention to negotiate A ceasefire, this is not about Ukraine or Israel, a ceasefire between conservative culture warriors and Bud Light. So, in a message he posted on True Social, former president saying that Anheuser-Busch, which makes the beer, is not a woke company. He came out with a lot of statistics and said, look, it's actually a humble company that holds the American social fabric together. Remember, there was a huge boycott going back to a marketing campaign by Anheuser-Busch involving someone who was trans. Anheuser-Busch spends $700 million a year with our great farmers, says Trump, employs 65,000 Americans, of which 1,500 are veterans. It goes on and on. They've raised over $30 million and given... 44,000 scholarships. Uh, Bud Light deserves a second chance, says Trump. Whereas other companies are actually looking to destroy America. Now, why is he suddenly doing this, bringing this up, when it is certainly still hurting the company, but has kind of died down as a news story? Well, according to National Review at least, Trump's message comes as a top Republican lobbyist for the company is set to host a fundraiser for the former president. Some tickets going for $10,000 apiece, as reported by Politico. So now it's in Trump's interest to help restore Anheuser-Busch's rehabilitation. Trump himself doesn't drink, so I can't make any beer jokes. This event is going to feature over 100 members of Congress, as well as Don Jr. Trump's comments come after his son, who is expected to attend, attend Miller's fundraiser, defended Bud Light on a podcast earlier this year. Now, just to remind you, by the third quarter of last year, Anheuser-Busch earnings had declined by 17%. Primarily because of sinking sales of Bud Light. Trump could use the cash. The RNC could use the cash. 
And the conclusion by National View is that Trump and Anheuser-Busch need each other. Which is going to bring me to story five. And I like to get tech stories into the podcast because, you know, ultimately that affects all of us. That's why I complain about social media and my iPhone and, and all of that. But this is a review. You've probably seen a picture of this in the last couple of days if you haven't realized it. It's a product by Apple, brand new product called the Vision Pro. And it's a person it's a virtual reality headset resembling a pair of ski goggles. And the cost, in case you were sort of thinking, hey, maybe I'll go get one. $3,500 for this wearable computer. So uh, tech columnist for the Times, Brian Chen, says Apple wouldn't give him a review copy, so he went and bought one. Says it actually costs more than $3,500 because you'll want to get a carrying case, AirPods, prescription lens inserts for people who wear glasses. Okay, obviously this is not for... Uh, those who are having trouble paying the rent. After using the headset for about five days, I'm unconvinced that people will get much value from it. Feels less polished than past first-generation Apple products. It's not better for doing work than a computer. The games I've tried so far aren't fun, which makes it difficult to recommend. An important feature, the ability to place video calls with a human-like digital avatar that resembles the wearer, terrified children <laughs> during a family FaceTime call. So this guy says, oh, I'll try this out. You know, I'll call some kids in my family. And they see him in this getup, and they're really scared. I, I don't mean to make fun of children who are terrified. I'm sure they've gotten over it by now. So the critic does say that the headset is superb at playing video including high-definition movies and your own 3D recordings that let you immerse yourself in past memories, which is both eerie and cool. Um, Has good picture quality, has more apps, has higher computer power than other headsets, but it's slightly heavier than Meta's cheaper headsets and plugs into an external battery pack that lasts only two hours. Um, Brian Chen does say the ski goggle aesthetic looks better than the bulky plastic visors of the past. But videos posted by early adopters walking around outside with the headset, I call them vision bros, confirm that people still look ridiculous wearing tech goggles, even when they're designed by Apple. Ouch. Vision Pro includes a knob called the Digital Crown. Turning it counterclockwise lets you see the real world in the background while keeping digital windows of your apps in the foreground. Turning it the other way hides the real world with an opaque background. I mean, this goes back to uh, 10 years ago, there was Google Glass. Google Glasses supposed to do the same thing. The tech wizards, the geniuses, keep trying to get this right. And except for... I don't know, early adopters doesn't quite cover it, except for tech addicts and aficionados. I don't know. Does the average person really need this thing? Even if it wasn't $3,500 plus. I preferred, he says, to see physical reality most of the time, but I still felt isolated. The headset cuts off part of your periphery, 
creating a binoculars-like effect. I confess that it was hard at times to remember to walk my dogs because I didn't see them or hear them whining. And another time I tripped over a stool. Apple says to clear away obstacles. I could tolerate juggling a notes app, a browser, and Microsoft Word for no longer than 15 minutes before feeling nauseated. And then the kicker is he was going to type the column using the headset, but he realized, because you have to like poke one key at a time, that he would never make his deadline. So, not exactly a rave review. I mean, if you're scaring your kids, you're leaving your poor dogs without a walk because you can't even see them or hear them. And you're tripping over a stool and feeling nauseated? I don't know. I'm not running out to get this. Are you? (laughs) Maybe someone else will like it better. You never know. Uh, Hey, thanks for joining. Uh, It just seems like every day there's so much to cover. And look, that's the business I'm in. I like covering all this stuff. I like talking to you about it. But I wouldn't mind like one slow news day. Sometime, maybe. I don't think it'll be this year. Hey, see you all tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity Podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.